the book of Zephaniah. I have to say, this is my favorite book at the moment. And I know I say it every time, but you know, when you move into a new book and you start studying it and you see things you've not seen before, it's just exciting. And this is the wonder of God's world. I don't think there's another book in the world that you could read and reread and reread every time you see something new and something fresh and something that's so applicable to your own life and to the things that are going on around you. Uh, but certainly this book of Zephaniah is all of those things. Now, in terms of uh, timeline and uh, when it was written and so on, uh, it seems to be fairly uh, conclusive because of the details that we're given. Uh, the Zephaniah was written somewhere between about 640 and 612 BC. Now, 640 uh, is the time that Josiah starts his reign as the king of Israel. And we know it's during that time of Josiah's reign, because uh, we have that introduction, and what we'll see in a moment, there's a Zephaniah is preaching. Uh, and certainly 612 is when Josiah uh, goes off the scene. That's when he's killed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. So it has to be in that window, uh, that kind of 28-year uh, kind of period or so on. Now, it's certainly before the destruction of Nineveh. And Nineveh is mentioned and referenced uh, as well in this book. But we know that uh, Zephaniah was the last of the pre-exile prophets. Now, in saying that, we have to conclude, that, of course, that Jeremiah was also preaching at this time. Um, Jeremiah had been on the scene before this and carried on during this time, uh, even up to 606 BC when Nebuchadnezzar finally came against Judah. Um, but in this sense, Zephaniah is the last one to be introduced, the last of the prophets to be introduced before Israel were taken away to their exile in Babylon for 70 years. His name, and again, we should be sensitive by now, that every detail in the Bible is there by deliberate supernatural design. So every name, every place name, every number, every detail is there by design. Zephaniah's name means Jehovah hides. And the context is that the, the Hebrew word here implies protects or treasures. So it's not Jehovah is hiding, it's Jehovah hides those who are his. He protects those, he treasures those who are his. And we'll see how that's played out beautifully. Uh, his name is played out in the message that he brings. Now, he was the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. So he was part of the royal family in that sense. And so he was a distant cousin of Josiah. And actually, we'll see in a minute that he traces his genealogy all the way back four generations to Hezekiah, maybe just to demonstrate his right to speak about these things, to speak about the state of the nation or the, the corruption that was going on with the kings of Judah. Hezekiah and Josiah were both godly kings. But between their reigns, there's Hezekiah, and then we have his son, which is Manasseh, and then Manasseh's son, Ammon, and then we have Ammon's son, Josiah, those four kings in the line, all in the line coming down from David. But in between Hezekiah and Josiah, we have a period of, I think it's 54 years, 52 years for Manasseh, if memory serves, and then two years for Ammon. So 54 years of ungodliness, almost a generation of idolatry, sin being paraded in the streets, 
Everything that, that we see going on around us today that grieves us was going on in Israel and grieved the godly that were in Judah at that time. Now there's a, a threefold theme that we see as we go through this short three-chapter book. Firstly, the sin of Israel. That's addressed, it's exposed again, as all the prophets seem to do. And then judgment on Israel's Gentile neighbors. You see, although God used the Babylonians to bring judgment, the judgment that they brought, the way they treated Israel, was cruel and harsh. It was beyond that which God had given them remit to do. And so God, and we've already seen this addressed by the other prophets, particularly Habakkuk had addressed this, that God was going to bring judgment on the Babylonians because of their iniquity. But we see also the other nations round about Israel were also judged because of the way they treated God's people. And we actually find there's six specific nations that are mentioned by name. There's the Philistines, who we're obviously very familiar with, uh, the Geothites, which we're not so familiar with, but the Moabites, Ammonites, Ethiopians, and Assyrians, again, we all know uh, from biblical narratives and from history. And the third theme that we'll get on to, not this week, but is the restoration under Messiah. So it's a book that really does look forward to what is coming. It deals with the immediate problems. It deals with the justice that God is going to mete out on those that were being antagonistic and cruel toward Israel. And then it deals with what God is going to do. You see, all of these prophets underneath there, there's always this hope that God is in complete control and he's going to do that which he promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God is a faithful God. Now, 24 times we have the I will or he will statements of the Lord. God makes a real statement in the book of what he is going to do. This is a book of God doing things. It's a book of action. You know, a lot of people think that God is passively sitting back and just kind of not really getting involved in the things that are going on. People may allege that today with what they see going on in Ukraine with Russia and their hostilities toward the Ukrainian people. You know, a lot of people will say, well, why doesn't God intervene? And yet God is doing things that we are not necessarily aware of, certainly are not coming through on the media, but God is working. God is doing incredible things that will come to light in time. The key phrase in the book is the day of the Lord. Now, although it only actually appears twice in the book, we find that that phrase occurs 21 times in the Bible. Um, twice the same. So I, interestingly, 21, and, you know, I get quite excited when I see these things because they always seem to have significance. 21 is 3 times 7. 3 has the idea of being divine. Chaos is the trinity. Seven has the idea of complete. So this is God, complete judgment upon the world. The day of the Lord. That's what it's uh, addressing. And every one of these scriptures, Old and New Testament, all deal with this issue. We'll talk about it in a little while. But interestingly, although twice the word, the phrase that he's only used, this day of the Lord is specifically referenced 12 times in this book. 
Again, you can see there the list that will be in the notes up online. You can have a look at this later if you want to go through it in detail. But specifically 12 times. Um, and there's a number of references. 12 voices in terms of judgment uh, or, or the, the nation of Israel, the government of Israel. Of course, we have the 12 tribes and so on. But then we also have two times six, two being the number of witness, six being the number of man. And it's like the witness against man. There's all sorts of ways we can see this, but everything is specific. The more you dig, the more you see. But these prophecies span history, uh, speaking to Israel at the time of Zephaniah, but also speaking of our time. Again, Aaron Rimmer said this, the whole book makes it clear that Zephaniah looks far ahead of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem onto that dreadful day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord, the day of his anger and judgment, upon which, however, will follow the blessing of the millennial reign of peace. So this is an incredible book that almost just cuts out the church age. It goes from this time of Israel and then brings us straight to the end times as we tend to speak of it. Now there is a a law uh, in terms of biblical uh, understanding and interpretation of scripture referred to as the law of double reference. A lot of commentators kind of use this to make mention of it. Uh, and this is just something that, that man has developed. It's not something you find in the Bible in terms of the law. But it's something that we, we, from a study point of view, you become very sensitive to this fact. I'll just read out it's typically, but this is from Arnold Fruchtenberg. He says, this law observes the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking of two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. Or another way of putting that is we have a model and then we have the fulfillment of that model. Okay, so one example would be the Passover. The Passover, of course, is an incredible feast of Israel that commemorated when they left Egypt. And they were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month, keep it until the 14th day, and then the whole congregation would kill this lamb. And then that, that's the, the model, if you like. It was a real event. It took place. But then we come to Passion Week, as we refer to it, the week of the crucifixion. And Jesus is taken on the 10th day as a spotless lamb. And then on the 14th day of that month, he's crucified. The whole congregation of Israel effectively killed. So that's one example. There's many others, of course, the situation with Abraham and Isaac. Uh, we see the father being willing to offer up his son. And then, of course, in fact, Abraham even names the place Jehovah Jireh. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And on exactly the same location, what was Mount Moriah, you and I know as Calvary, Some 2,000 years later, another father does offer his son the lamb that was offered up. And so there are many, many examples we see. We see another one, of course, with Antichrist. Uh, In the Old Testament, we have uh, this allusion to an event took place in 167 BC. Uh, This um, Seleucid uh, leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrates the temple in Jerusalem and sacrifices a pig on the altar and so on. And Jesus himself, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and so on, alludes to this as being a forerunner of what will take place when Antichrist comes. So we have many of these examples, many, many, uh, which is another way that we can see that the Bible is supernaturally designed, because man couldn't have done that, not with the span of times between these things. But this book, we see exactly this thing playing out, as we'll see as we go through. So a quick overview of the book. First chapter, Judgment on Judah is foretold. 
In chapter 2, judgment on the Gentiles is forewarned, and specifically because of their treatment of God's people. Now, we'll look at that in detail next week. Uh, Matthew 25 gives us the sheep and the goats judgment. A lot of people are aware of this, but not a lot of, a lot of people seem to realize that it's specifically referencing the way the world, the nations of the world, treat Israel. So we'll talk about that when we get to it in more detail. But interestingly, we find this is a very Jewish book. And I know, of course, it's in the Jewish Tanakh, the Old Testament. But four times we have the reference to my people, God calling the Jews his people. We have a reference to the God of Israel, the people of the Lord of hosts, referring to the Jews, and the Lord their God, again, referring to the Jews. So it's a very Jewish theme running all the way through this. And, of course, there is a way of escape from God's wrath that is promised. Uh, which is breathtaking. We'll see when we get there. Uh, And then in chapter 3, to conclude, there's the national regathering and restoration of Israel that have been promised. It's one of the constant themes of the Bible. And, of course, there's references here to her God, the King of Israel, the Lord thy God. So, again, you see that very Jewish uh, mindset behind this. But it's not a view that says that Israel have blown it, they've lost their opportunity. It's a view that says that though Israel will be judged for their sin, God is faithful and will bring about all that he promised. And Israel will be reestablished in their land and the throne of David will be sat upon by the Messiah. Okay, so with that, let's jump straight into chapter 1 of Zephaniah, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Quite a detailed introduction. A lot of the prophets don't give us a lot of their uh, history or ancestry. Often we're told their father's name, but we're not told anything else. But here, Zephaniah makes the point that he is of the royal line. So again, all the way back to King Hezekiah. Now, if you look Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, um, I got it wrong, I said 52 years, it's 55 years, I'm three years out. Uh, so it was a period of 57 years of iniquity uh, that had plagued the land. Um, but Manasseh, then for 55 years, Ammon for two years, and then Josiah comes to the throne, and it's during Josiah's reign that Zephaniah is the one that is preaching to the leadership, the rulers of the nation, and to the nation as a whole. During this time, of course, Habakkuk and Jeremiah were also prophesying. Now we see the power of godly men proclaiming his word. You know, Jonah preached to Nineveh and led to probably the greatest revival in history. Micah, as we've already seen, preached to Hezekiah and to the kingdom at the time of Judah. And it brought about a repentance. Jeremiah, or the book of Jeremiah, makes reference to that. And it appears that Zephaniah's preaching here was in no small way a catalyst for the national repentance and the transformation that then came under Josiah. Jim, this morning in his prayer, referred to this very transformation under Josiah. And it should be something that we plead with God on this basis that the Lord turned this nation around 
when a godly king was on the throne. And we should pray for our nation the same way that we have godly leaders. This is straight out of scripture. I'll just read from Second Chronicles. Josiah began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them. He cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. It's a lot just to read. Just think how much of this was filling the land. He broke in pieces. He made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali. Now bear in mind the northern kingdom has been taken captive by this point. Josiah is now going to go throughout the land and trying to rid the land of idolatry. And he says, with their uh, mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images to powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now, this is all before Josiah then has this uh, project in Jerusalem to repair the, the, the temple, and they discover a copy of the law, and that leads to even more revival. But what was it that led about this change? Well, Josiah was only young when he became king, and it would seem to be, a lot of commentators are in agreement, that it was Zephaniah's teaching, because he was a contemporary, and the fact that Zephaniah specifically alludes to the fact that it was during Josiah's reign that he was speaking these things, that that had been the catalyst for this change. <clears throat> now, as we go from here in chapter 1, we start to see some of these I will statements, what God is going to do. Now, the first one really covers the first, uh, from verse 2 to verse 7. And we see that God saying that he's going to consume his people. The wrath is going to be poured out upon them. And also the hypocrites in the land. And it's going to be a, a sacrificial feast, if you like, prepared for Babylon. That God is going to offer his own people to the Babylonians. That the Babylonians will bring judgment upon them, but God will allow this because of their sin. So let's go into the text. Verse 2, And I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. John Trapp, one of my favorite commentators, way, way back in the 1600s, made this comment. He said, a tragic beginning of a terrible sin. Hard knots must have hard wedges. Hard hearts, heavy menaces, yea, handfuls of hellfire must be cast into the faces of such that they may awake out of the snare of the devil by whom they are held captive. I just love the kind of imagery that, that, that John Trapman creates there. You know, we would read this quite casually possibly the first few verses, and yet you realize quite the intensity with what Zephaniah is bringing this, this message. Lord, I will utterly consume all things from off the land. Imagine somebody, you know, standing on your border. I mean, I guess for the Ukraine, they're getting this right now, aren't they? Somebody on their border who's threatening them. Now, if somebody were to stand before us and say that they're going to consume everything from off the land, that would get our attention. Well, that's what Zephaniah was saying. 
But as John Trapp alludes, that because people are being so given over to iniquity, and we saw in that reference from Chronicles, the extent with which these idols have been set up around the land and the high places and the groves and so on, you get high places on top of the hills so they could worship the host of heaven and then in the groves where there's clearings in the woods and so on. And there was so much of that going on. It needed a strong arm to wake people up. How we need that today. We should never be afraid of preaching the gospel. You know, the world has kind of almost got hardened to this kind of hellfire and damnation message to the point they've forgotten it. They don't care about it. But we need to come back and use those kind of things in our conversation with people to let them know that judgment is coming from God. He will not tolerate the things that we see going on in this land, the immorality, the injustice. The Hebrew here, by the way, implies uh, gathering, I will gather all things, or literally I will pack up and I will take my own and be gone. That's the idea of this, I will consume all things from the land, I'll consume man and beast. But the idea is not just everything's going to be destroyed, but that God is going to come in and take and remove his own people, which is a really interesting concept because of what we'll see coming up in a moment. Now notice also the Lord says this twice. It's very much like in the New Testament where Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Not just I'm trying to tell you something, but listen, I'm telling you something, but listen intently, I'm trying to tell you something. And that seems to be, again, what God is doing here to the people. Verse 4, we carry on. I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And the name of the Cherimians uh, with the priests. Now, these seem to be um, not quite sure which nation they were, but these were people that had tagged themselves along with the priests in Israel, these false priests, priests that had set themselves up in their roles. Uh, and they were assisting in these pagan sacrifices. They were bringing in their own idolatry and uh, seducing Israel and so on. And God's saying he's going to destroy all of those things. We've seen again, we read in Chronicles, that this was throughout the land. And God says also, and then that worship the host of heaven, as we said already, they had a real fear for the stars and the planets. We don't tend to worry too much about that, but then we don't have any need to worry about that. But as we've said before, things may well have been very different back at that time. And certainly there was a real fear, not just amongst the Jews, but amongst all cultures of the planet Mars. We talked briefly in the past about the reasons that may have been the case. Certainly the Romans referred to Mars as the god of war. You know, in uh, Athens, when Paul gets to, to Greece, he goes to Mars Hill. And that's how it's named. There was a real fear of planets. And they didn't understand some of the things they would see going on uh, in the night sky and so on. So they had a fear. They, They perceived that there was some supernatural power at work. So they worshipped these things, and that's why they went to these high places. So again, them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship, and them that swear by the Lord. Now notice this. Swear by the Lord and that swear... By Malkin. Okay, well, we'll come to this in a second. Uh, and them that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for him. Interestingly, Satan tried in vain 
to get God to stretch out his hand against Job. And of course, God wouldn't do that. God eventually allows Satan to, to have his way with Job for his purposes. God had a plan and purpose and all of that. But God wouldn't stretch out his own hand. And yet now, verse 4 starts by saying that God is going to stretch out his hand against Judah. You kind of realize quite how far things have gone for God to come to that point to say that now he is going to stretch out his own hand upon Judah. I mean, yes, he's going to use the Babylonians. But God is saying that he is going to do this. That's a really scary place to be. Now notice, the judgment is going to be on them that worship and swear by the Lord and swear by Malchan. Now this seems to be a reference to some foreign deity that was worshipped. Uh, some actually suggest uh, that this is the same as uh, Molech, uh, the, the god of the Amorites. Um, it's, uh, one of the commentators was pretty sure about that reference. So interestingly, though, that we have people that are worshipping God, but they're worshipping other things. And this is one of the problems, you see, because a lot of churches today, they worship all sorts of other things. But they worship God too. So it's almost as if, well, that makes it okay. It's almost like it legitimizes what they're doing because they still worship God. But it's not true worship to God because God wants to be worshipped alone. God is a jealous God. God will not share his glory with another. And yet that's exactly what they were doing. And it's almost even more offensive, not that they were just going after idols, but they were trying to legitimize it by including things of God as well. It's a very perverse mindset that led them to that. Verse 7, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has bid his guests. Interestingly, isn't that opening statement? Hold thy peace. Don't say anything. I'll come to this in just a second. John Trapp again says, when his hand is upon thy back, let thy hand be upon thy mouth. Chat not against him. Murmur not at his menaces, but stand mute before him. He is the Lord God. I like that. I've heard lots of people make comments over the years, you know, that oh, when they get to heaven, they're going to give God a piece of their mind. <laughs> Every account in scripture that we see someone standing before God, they are fallen down prostrate before him. You know, you're not going to stand in God's presence. You're not going to argue with him. You're not going to say to God why he got things wrong. Or you're not going to be able to suggest how God should have done it. When we are before God, we will be in awe. And the people of this world now finally standing before that great white throne judgment. They will be speechless. And this verse is that reminder, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. Anybody that doesn't do that has no concept of who God really is. They will know. They will find out. And then we have this reference. For the day of the Lord is at hand. This, again, is this allusion to this day that is coming. Now, this, of course, in the context, speaks of what was going on, what was about to happen on the near horizon horizon for Zephaniah that was going to take place in Judah, this time of judgment. But it specifically speaks 
of what is coming for us in the days in which we live. You see, the invited guest, it says the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has bid his guest. Now, for Zephaniah, that was the Babylonians. They've been the ones that God had invited to come and to take a spoil of Judah, to, to take everything they wanted out of Jerusalem. But in the distance, the coming tribulation that the Bible speaks about, the guests that are invited there are the fowls of the air, and they are encouraged to come and feast on the nations of this world that have rebelled against God, that God will come back and judge. In Revelation 19, we read this. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great gods. It's a very similar kind of language. A feast is being prepared in Zephaniah and so here. That you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. God was preparing a judgment upon Judah and the Babylonians would be invited to come and take a, a spoil, take prey. And it's so it will be in the coming tribulation that the Lord will gather all of the nations of the world, the kings of the earth, and so they're going to be gathered together a place that the Bible tells us is known as Armageddon or the Megiddo Valley in Israel. And then the birds of the air are literally going to be able to come and take a spoil. We have a, a kind of grass bank that runs down outside of our house and uh, our neighbor and, and we, uh, at times just throw some bread out for the birds. And a number of times I've sat there with the girls and we've seen just huge flocks of birds just all descend. And we have you know, a, a fight between the, uh, the seagulls and the, um, the crows that are there. There's some magpies there. And they're all kind of scurrying around. And we have seen have loads and loads of crows that live in the trees near us. And it's just incredible. It's like a blanket, a black blanket on the ground. Of course, the seagulls try and get in. And every now and again, the squirrel gets involved as well. And it's quite entertaining, actually. I, I said there's seagulls. I think I mean to correct me once. Apparently, there are a lot of common gulls. I don't know if that's what she says, so she's probably right. Um, but we see all these things gathered together. You know, when, when there's food, birds just go for it. And this is the idea that's being presented here. This is the judgment that God is going to bring. Now, we're going to the next section. It's just a, 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 just a taste there. It's going to build an intensity. From verse 8 to 11, it's kind of, I will punish. And it kind of starts at the royal palaces, as if God walked through the city and invited the people, uh, or sorry, Zephaniah walked through the city and invited people to let, lament with him. And then also the merchants will be especially grieved because their ill-gotten wealth would be seized. That's what's coming. So let's just jump into verse 8. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. It's interesting that in this time, God was bringing judgment upon royalty, those that had a lot. Those that were very wealthy are those that are immediately going to be punished here. Isn't it interesting that we're living in a time where those that have a lot are at risk of losing it all? You know, we, we see so much of this situation in Ukraine has really highlighted 
how fragile some of these things are. How the world's economy is being shaken. How food is being now highlighted as being a real concern because of the impact of what Ukraine has typically provided to the world's agriculture, fertilizers and so on. And they're talking of a, a food shortage as a result of this. But all of these wealthy Russians that are finding now their assets have been frozen. You know, it's interesting. We've seen just the, the birth pains of everything that was going on in Zephaniah's day is happening to is it like the kings and the princes in today's world. Adam Clark just said this, after the death of Josiah, the king of Judah saw no prosperity and every reign terminated miserably until at last King Zedekiah and the king's children were cruelly massacred at Riblah when Nebuchadnezzar had taken Jerusalem. Verse 9, in the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. The second it seems to be a reference to those two parts, the upper part to Jerusalem and the lower part. And the fish gate in, 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 seems to speak of one of the ways that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, entered into Jerusalem. Verse 9, though, just speaks of the Arrogance, the assumption, he says, I will punish all those that leap on the threshold which fill their master's houses. Had the idea that these wealthy masters had their servants who would just go wherever they want to in anybody's house and they would take whatever they wanted for their masters. It just speaks of arrogance and assumption. How ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down or they that bear silver are cut off. Maktesh seems to be a, a quarter or part of Jerusalem where they hold uh, rice and corn, you know, prepared it and so on, getting out the husks. Uh, and the idiom seems to be that the merchants in Jerusalem will be crushed as grain is pounded in a mortar. And again, there's a reference there to the, the wealthy, the merchants lamenting because they're losing their wealth. The next section from 12 to 13, the people of Jerusalem would try and hide, but the invading soldiers would find them and slay them anyway. And then the, the complacent would discover that her theology was all wrong. And we're going to find the same today. There are many in the church that will try and argue against the idea of God bringing judgment. But there's going to be a real rude awakening. It shall come to pass, verse 12, to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles. The darkness is the light to the Lord. He doesn't need candles. But the idea is that they're going to literally search out every nook and cranny and punish the men that are settled on their knees and say in their heart, the Lord will do good, neither will he do evil. So in other words, saying, oh, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. They're arguing and saying, well, God's not going to get involved. A lot of people argue that today. And they're going to be shaken. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty and their houses a desolation. They're going to lose everything. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and not drink the wine thereof. It's the futility of rejecting God's word. You see, in gaining the world, they're going to lose it all. It happened then, it's going to happen in our days. 
And we're right on the brink of these things for us being fulfilled. The next section from verse 14 to 18 is the day of the Lord uh, is going to be described. Uh, there's going to be nowhere to hide. It's going to be a day of judgment on sinners. And of as Proverbs 11 verse 4 reminds us, riches profit not in the day of wrath. So we'll read, this is verse 14. In the great day of the great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hastens greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. It's very graphic language as it's used. It goes on, and that will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. And again, it was true of Jerusalem in 606 BC. All of this happened, and it's going to be true of the coming tribulation. Just look at what Isaiah says of the day of the Lord. Same, same kind of language. How need for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. That's how scary it's going to be. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Notice the source of this judgment is from the Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. This is the reason to bring judgment upon the sinners, just as Zephaniah's day, so the coming day of the Lord will be a judgment upon the sinners. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil. See, God is a God of action. Those I wills in Zephaniah echoed here. And the wicked for their iniquity, I will cause the arrogancy of the plowed to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man of the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Now, the day of the Lord clearly is a time of God's wrath. It's God's judgment on this wicked, unbelieving and Christ-rejecting world. And it's also a time, just as in Zephaniah's day, that God is going to use the judgment to bring Israel back to himself. Now, just bear with me. We're only going to do three verses in this chapter, but you'll see why this is important. In the context of all of this, and this should give you great comfort. So because of the Gentiles, sorry, judgment is going to come on the Gentiles because of their sins, not just on Israel, but on the Gentiles. So it should be the nation specifically in Zephaniah's day around Judah would also feel the wrath of God. And the other prophets 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, as we've been looking at, also prophesied these things. But the Gentiles hadn't repented. God would punish their mistreatment of his people because of their pride and their worship of false gods. And in his mercy, God calls them to repent. Interesting. God gives them opportunity to repent. And it starts, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before, as the, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. You see, God in his mercy is giving the Gentile nations an opportunity to repent before his wrath comes. Again, specifically note that this is toward the Gentile nations in Zephaniah's day, but the picture is that it applies equally in our day. Well, that means every nation in the world that is not Jewish has the opportunity now, right now, to repent, to seek God. And this is the verse that should give you great comfort. This is right here in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Old Testament, and it says, regarding the Gentiles, seek ye the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Okay, so firstly, the call goes out to seek God while he may be found. And then, of course, there's this reference to the meek. Who are the meek? What is the humble? Who, as it were, give up the right to themselves? that understand that God is in control, that put their trust and their faith in God. Though the vision has tarried, it will come. Notice they also do what's right. They seek righteousness. They seek meekness. And then look at that last sentence. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. It's a promise to escape God's wrath both in Zephaniah's day and in our day. Now, in the New Testament, much is spoken of this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, But of the time and seasons, Paul writing, Brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, there we have that phrase again, the day of the Lord, so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they, the ungodly, She'll say, peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. They shall not escape. Using the same kind of language that Isaiah used, that Jeremiah uses. And then we jump to verse 9, and Paul says, For God has not appointed us, believers, people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The context is very clear. Paul is talking about the coming day of the Lord and says that God has not appointed us to that time of wrath. In Luke 21, Jesus has just been laying out the things that would take place before his return. And then turns to the disciples and says, But you, watch ye therefore and pray always, that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says to the disciples, there is a way of escape. That way of escape we refer to as the rapture of the church. It's the blessed hope that Paul speaks about. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those that have died that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. 
If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, just pause, consider that for a second. That is the basis of our faith. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that, then in the same way we can believe this, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or proceed, as old King James, not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul says, so comfort one another with these words. This is our hope. As the world is plunging into a time of which it is completely oblivious at this stage, we have a great hope. As these things start to go horribly wrong all around the world, and what's going on in Ukraine is just the birth pangs. It's the beginning. COVID was part of the birth pangs. It's going to get much worse. As the world starts to panic and fear, as we start to run out of food, as the price of oil is going so high, people are wondering what they're going to do, how they're going to pay bills. Well, you know what? The Lord is going to provide for his people. How do I know? Because the Lord has been teaching me over the last year that if we wait for him, if we trust him, he will provide. In Isaiah, It's not just the New Testament that we have this teaching about the rapture. In the Old Testament, we have this great reference in Isaiah 26. It's a passage that speaks about resurrection. But then it says, verse 20 of chapter 26, Come, my people, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. That's God's wrath. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Almost that's a summary of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, his name means that the Lord will hide those that are his. This is exactly what this verse is saying. All through the Bible we have this message. In Psalm 27 it says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. It applies in many areas of life, but specifically it applies to what is coming, this time of trouble that is coming upon the earth. The Lord has promised to provide for and to protect and ultimately to remove his people before his wrath is poured out. Now, because of time, I'm not going to go through this. It will be on the slides online. But the rapture of the church is just, it it shows that God has this incredible model that is based upon a Jewish wedding. And I'm going to leave all this in there. I'll let you go through this. The slides and the notes are all there. But the point is, let me just get to the last slide because it sums it up. It's incredible how God has engineered his relationship with the church, he refers to as his bride, and his marriage, marriage to the church to be just like a Jewish wedding. If you go through those slides, you'll see the details. But this model in Zephaniah is wonderful. In fact, let me just go back to that slide. Let me read this first to you. Matthew 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, that's God the Father, which made a marriage for his son, Jesus Christ. 
And that marriage is based upon the model of a Jewish wedding. And everything, including the groom, Jesus, returning to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride, all fits in with this model. It's really very, very beautiful. But just this close. Israel were heading for judgment. The priests had rejected God's word. False prophets were promising peace. They denied that judgment was coming. They were burning incense and embracing idolatry. God would allow Israel to go through this tribulation to bring them back to him. This is what was going on in Zephaniah's day. But it's exactly what we see happening now. And the Gentiles were long overdue judgment, but God promised the meek amongst the Gentiles that they could escape the coming wrath if they sought him and trusted him and waited for him. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this reminder this morning that you are in complete control. And Lord, though we see things going on around us that we do not understand, Lord, though there are many things that will cause this world to be fearful and afraid, Lord, we have hope. We have a great comfort and a great peace. That, Lord, we can trust you because you have promised to not only provide for us through what is coming, to deliver us from this evil world and that we will get to stand before your throne, before your wrath is then put out upon this world, just as you were saying to the people in Zephaniah's day. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the timely reminder of these things through this book. Lord, just impress these things on our hearts. This week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.